It really is uh, great seeing you today. Uh, how many of y'all recognize that for the first three centuries of Christianity's expansion, when it was really blowing, going, and booming, the church did not have a building like this. There weren't church campuses. The way the church spread and spread like wildfire was, as Acts chapter 2, verse 46 explains, house to house. They met house to house. And you think, well, how else could they do it? And, and you would imagine that if people were meeting in homes as the church, they were, of course, smaller groups. Now, I would imagine that in some situations, the houses that were opened up would have been, in some cases, rather large. So there could have been some large gatherings, but largely it was around the tables or the living room, maybe seated around uh, in a circle, backs against the wall. You, you can imagine what it would have been like. It was much smaller than these large group gatherings. And, and what happened is these houses where people would meet became, in some respects, sanctuaries. They became places where people were comforted and comfortable because when you open up your home as a place for meeting together and meeting God, God invades that space and it becomes sacred. And if you've ever hosted a home group or been a part of a home group, a community group, small group, you recognize that it's not just for that hour that the space becomes sacred. It feels like the space has been changed because you've made your house a place of worship. But back in the day, people didn't have houses of worship like like this building. And, and the staff and I, we were kind of talking about this, about how you know places like the historic sanctuary can become a house away from a house. And that's a little bit sad to us because we recognize that it's been almost a year for the traditional service folks that they've been in the historic sanctuary. And uh, that's, you know, that's really too bad. I'm not apologizing for that because it was Al's fault. But uh, uh, we did kind of collectively decide together, look, we got to stay spread out and all the rest. But our staff has been talking about it really would be nice for the traditional service if we could reopen that. And we've been thinking in our minds about maybe eight weeks from today, the first Sunday after Easter. Some of us are getting our inoculation. Some of us were wearing the mask. Some of us were not concerned. And, and so we do want feedback from people before we make that a hard date. It may be way too early. I don't know. But I know that a great many of us are anxious to get back in that space because over time, when a space is associated with meeting with other people and meeting with God, it becomes comforting and comfortable and sacred and special, and I get that. I, I went back down to McAllen for the first time in almost two years. I see my parents come and go. That's, that's where my, my family's from. That's where I'm from. They would come and go through Waco all the time, so I didn't really need to go down to South Texas, but recently they sold their house, as some of you know. And so I wanted to go back and see the house. I hadn't been there for a couple of years, but I wanted to see the house. My dad built it about 45 years ago, something like that. I guess a little bit longer. I guess I was six years old living in that house. And so uh, uh, as a general contractor, he kind of kept it up to date and all the rest. But the house was more than just a house to me. It's the house of my childhood. It's house, a house in which I grew up. I got very fond memories of that house. In fact, I don't even, I don't even think it was right for my parents to sell it without consulting with me first because it's as much my house as theirs. But that's another story. But anyways, they, they moved for all the right reasons. They wanted to get up, you know, out of the Rio Grande Valley, but closer to family. Uh, the, the house they moved into is, is by many accounts, I think, as good or better than the house in which I grew up in terms of a house. And they moved largely to get a little bit closer to me and a little bit further away from my brother, and that's understandable. 
but I'm, I'm kind of kidding about that. Not really. Uh, but anyways, they're up here and, and that's all fine. But I'll never go back to the same house again. And it was special because it, it was just sort of the place where I was raised. And actually, my parents did a pretty good intentional job of trying to raise me in a Christian household. So I understand people attaching feelings to a space, especially when the space is, in many respects, given over to God. And Gene and I understand what that's like, too, in terms of hosting people in our home. When, when we were younger, but a little bit younger, back when I was in seminary, uh, we lived in this 890-square-foot duplex and we were part of a church that was a very worship-like-you-mean-it, love-Jesus-like-you-mean-it sort of a church. We loved it, but we felt like there, there was something missing. We didn't have the relationships with other couples that we thought we really wanted to have. And so we did something that the church didn't do as a structural uh, buy-in. But we decided we're going to start having a Bible study in our home. And so we had couples over, and it wasn't a very big space, but it was filled and we did the Bible studies and prayer groups, and we spent time together and worshiped together. And it was one of the most meaningful times, I have to tell you, in all of our married lives, the time when we opened up our home as a, as a sacred space where other people could meet with the Lord and we could meet with the Lord together with all these other people who were meeting with the Lord. It was, it was great. And I know from personal experience, like some of you may know from your own backgrounds and experience, I know why Christianity thrived the way that it did. And it's not just a technique or a strategy, but I could see the benefit of the strategy of the church advancing house to house, home to home, people having an open door policy with their neighbors. And so this morning, here's what I want to do. As, as we seek as a church to get back to normal, only hoping that the new normal is a better normal than the normal before, I want to spend a little time just talking through this whole idea of community groups and meeting together in people's homes. It's not the only way to do it. We have small groups that meet on campus, and we call those Sunday schools, and, and they're great, a little bit different, and they're still wonderful, and they, and they meet a need. Uh, but for some people, the small group experience is not only an additional thing, but even preferable. I like good lecture-style teaching. I really do. And I love our Sunday schools, and there's a lot to be said for having everything done in one morning, especially when you have children, and they can go to the youth group or the children or the preschool and all the rest. But I know that Brett's very big on this, and I'm very big on this, this whole idea of community groups. And so I want to spend a little time this morning being very practical, talking about some of my hopes and some of Brett's hopes and the hopes of, of our, our ch church ministerial staff concerning after Easter and, and the future with regards to community groups. Now, some of you may be wondering, okay, what is a community group? Let me just explain it to you really, really quickly. A community group, first of all, it's small. It's a group of like three to ten adults. It's much like our worship service this morning, uh, only uh, in a living room. Uh, it, it's, it's, in, it's an intimate setting, okay? The second thing you need to know is uh, it's a predictable environment. You know who the same people are who are going to be there, you know, week after week generally. There's also some uh, autonomy. That is, you get to choose. Uh, hey, we get together better on uh, Sunday evening or maybe uh, Wednesday morning at 7 o'clock or whatever the case may be. There's some liberty there, and you might choose to study something a little bit different than another group. 
But then on top of that, there is some accountability, and that means Brett wants to know, I need to know, hey, what's being taught, what's really actually going on here, not just so that we can communicate with the rest of the church body what's happening, but so that people don't just kind of go off into outer space. Because I, I think you may recognize there's a lot of crazy stuff out there, I mean, frankly, and, and we just want to have some accountability. But we understand why, I understand from experience why community groups are so good but I think intuitively, even if you've never experienced Sunday school or small group or DNA group or one-on-one type of relationship in terms of the church, you probably ought to see with clarity, this stuff is kind of important, actually very important because we were made for relationship. Uh, most of us here recognize, I think, how God created the world, Genesis 1 and, and, and 2. You see that God, you know, by the might of his word with great simplicity very little effort but absolute incredible creative power forms the heavens and the earth and everything in all the universe in a matter of what is communicated six days it's just he does it it's amazing and it's not just that he does a powerful thing it's that god who is omniscient and perfect in his judgment looks over the creation, and there's this phrase that occurs again and again and again. It says, it actually six times, and God saw that it was good, and God saw that it was good, and he saw it was good, he saw it was good, he saw it was good, he saw it was good. God, who is good and created everything, saw that he didn't make any mistakes. Great creation. Then on the sixth day, the Bible says that he created humankind, created man. And then after that final creative act, the cherry on top, he looks at the creation, and his evaluation actually changes. He looked at everything and he says, it was very good, amazing. And then when you get to chapter 2, verse 18, there's a little bit of a change of tune. Because for the first time, God says, it is not good. All before it was good, it's good, it's good, it's very good. But now it's not good. And God says, it's not good for man to be alone. Now, I know that oftentimes we will talk about that verse in the context of marriage or in a marriage series, and it's Valentine's Day. It is not good for man to be alone. Now, sometimes it's good for women to be alone, but it's not good for the guy uh, to be alone. We'll talk about that in a marriage series, or you can talk about that maybe you know, for a wedding ceremony. It's a great verse. But I think the verse actually goes beyond just the immediate application to a marriage relationship. It gets at something even more fundamental and that is, for every human being, there is this need, and it's even a God-given need, to be in relationship with people. Now, as a pastor, I do some counseling from time to time. I usually will do, you know, a couple, and if something needs to go past that, I'll send them to a counselor or marriage therapist and all the rest. I'll do some premarital counseling, that kind of thing. But pretty frequently when people come to me concerning relationship issues, I will, I will give them this advice. Um, almost always, don't expect too much. Now that doesn't sound very nice, but it's like, look, don't put the weight of God on your husband or your wife. Only God can bear the weight of deity. You'll crush that person if you expect from them what you should only expect from God. There's a God-shaped hole in every human's life, and no human being can fill that God-shaped hole. That's true. But you know what else is kind of true? It's actually very true. There's a human-shaped hole in every soul that God himself will not fill. When you look at the 
the scriptures here, what's so interesting is that when God says it is not good, this is before the fall. There's no rebellion. There's no sin. The relationship between man and God hasn't, hasn't been fractured yet. Uh, man and God walk through the garden together. They communicate with one another. There's a, an experience of full-on, clear understanding, joy, and intimacy with the Father. God is fully present to Adam. Adam's fully present to God. And in the context of this sinless perfection, God still says to Adam, you're alone. What that says to me is God does meet our needs, but he does meet our needs not just through an immediate contact, but through the contact of human form. God meets our needs, and we can have a relationship directly with God, and this is very important. When you're a member of the body of Christ, Jesus is your head, and you can directly go to him. You don't have to go through someone else as if anyone other than Jesus Christ is your high priest. You have direct communication with the head. But it's also true that as a member of the body of Christ, you also have connection with the head through the body. We, we need flesh and blood in our lives. There's nothing wrong with that. That's how God designed us. You have and I have a hole in my soul that only a human being can fill. Now, when we know that's the case, we have to recognize it's not enough for me to have a relationship with God through a private Bible study. It's not enough for me to have a relationship with God through K-love on my way to work. It's not enough to read a Christian book or no offense to me intended to listen to Ernest every once in a while on YouTube or even here in the large group setting. You need people in your life. You need to experience community. And that's what community groups do. They give us an opportunity to have that human-shaped whole filled in the way that God intended for it to be filled. And so I'm pretty big on community groups. I know that Brad is very big on it. And what we're wanting to do is after Easter, the, the week after Easter, to begin doing some community groups. And apparently Brett's got about eight different houses that are lined up that want to begin hosting, conducting these community groups. And I'm excited about this. I also recognize that's a little weird because you're going to have somebody in your home and there's still this COVID thing and all the rest. And some people have recognized we're going to meet on the back porch. We'll meet on the front porch. We'll meet in the front yard. April, May, not bad weather. Hopefully the ice will have melted, you know, by then and things will be good. And maybe by the time August rolls around, September, well, we've gotten some inoculations and things will be kind of back to normal. I, you know, I don't know. But we're ready to press forward with these community groups. Now, for the remainder of this morning, here's what I'm going to do. I'm just going to communicate as clearly as I know how to do why we're sold out on cell groups, why we are so big on going small in terms of groups. And there's eight reasons. We're going to shoot through these and, and then we'll be done. But I hope this is helpful to you and clear for you. Number one, uh, why should we press toward being a community group church? Number one, community groups provide the optimal environment for one another ministry. And, and what I mean to communicate here is in many, many different passages and many different ways we are told to minister to one another with the recognition that really you get more out of giving than you do out of receiving. And when you're in a small group context, you have lots of opportunity to contribute in different ways and do one another ministry. That's when life gets exciting when you're giving or you feel like you have opportunities to give in addition to or maybe even beyond simply taking. Jesus said this to his disciples. He said, now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. 
There's lots of texts that just talk directly about one another ministry. John chapter 15, verse 17, these things I command you that you love one another, Romans 15, 7, wherefore receive you one another as Christ also received us to the glory of God. Romans 15, 14 tells us admonish one another. Galatians chapter 15, verse 5, verse 13 tells us that we should serve one another. Galatians chapter 6, verse 2 says bear one another's burdens. 1 Thessalonians 5, 11 tells us build one another up. Hebrews 10, 4 says let's, let's consider one another to provoke unto love and to good works. First Peter chapter four, verse 10 says, as every man has received the gift, even so minister the same one to another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. What you've received from the Lord, you've got to pass on to other people because we're commanded to do one another ministry and one another ministry is way much more than and other than simply coming to a service, even though I don't want to make light of a, of a big service. It has to involve some sort of ministry that's happening on a more intimate level. I, I have heard, and I hope I haven't preached this way, but I have heard messages kind of along the lines of, you know, the problem with churches these days or the problem with mainline churches is everybody's singing, you know, standing on the promises and they're just sitting on the premises. And, and I kind of get that. But I also recognize it's not fair to be negative toward lack of participation if opportunities for participation aren't presented. When we have these small groups, you have an obvious opportunity to be a part and to minister one to another using your particular gifts. Um, if you're a teacher, you can teach. If you're a host, you can host. If you have the gifts of helps or mercy, you can use those gifts. I have found that in these small groups, whatever your gifts are, they can be put to good use Without any kind of bureaucracy, it just happens as the Holy Spirit leads in that group. There's a second reason we're really big on community groups, and that is they provide an optimal environment for care. And I could spend a lot of time kind of elaborating on this, but I won't. Uh, I think most of us that have been around, we recognize that when there are problems in our lives, yeah, on occasion, maybe you need a therapist or a counselor or whatever, but most of the time, our problems can be fixed by simply having a family or at least a family away from family and good friends. It's not that complicated. Number, number three, community groups provide a sense of belonging. And that's so important because sometimes you want the sense of belonging. The reason you want the sense of belonging is because you actually need belonging. Uh, that doesn't always happen around churches. And let me just kind of tell you what happens sometimes. If a person is not involved, connected in a Sunday school class or a ministry team or a you know, the, the praise team or some service team or bereavement committee or something, if there's no connection to anything other than the large group setting, not only should you not expect people to go calling when you're not around, we don't always know, and even when I do know, what you've communicated to other people if you haven't necessarily gotten involved in anything other than this one particular setting, is I kind of prefer my anonymity. Um, I, I, I have found, and this is actually, I found this to be true personally, and I've seen this in terms of different studies, when people are not connected or they choose to remain disconnected or they choose a certain amount of distance or anonymity, when you try to get people more connected than they don't want to be, it oftentimes, most frequently, it will backfire. Here's, here's what I've seen happen. Somebody will, you know, they'll be, this used to happen more frequently when I was pastoring a smaller church. When I was much younger in South Texas, there was this one fellow that I had an interest in, and I kind of thought we had a relationship or friendship going. 
And when he wouldn't be around for a while, I'd just go by his house and say, hey, you know, what's going on? I'm going to only live like five blocks away. So I would kind of check in on him. And then one of these days I discovered he left the church and he didn't even tell me directly. And he'd said, well, all Ernest wants is my money. It's like I never even brought up money. The guy didn't have money. He was like, he did okay. He was a Border Patrol agent. And I thought I was a friend with him. But he didn't like me checking in on him. He wanted to come to church and remain anonymous. I had a friend one time explain to me that in every church, every church is like a bar. This is probably not a great illustration, sorry, but, you know, he said every church is like a bar. You got people come in, they want to belly up and talk to the bartender. You got some that come and they, they come with their group of friends and they want to sit down at the tables in the middle and have, you know, snacks and a beer. And then you have some people, they just want to be left alone in the booth at the back of the room by themselves in the dark. If you haven't sat down at the table with a group and you're not bellying up to the bar, the assumption of everybody else around is you just want to be left alone. And most of the time we're getting the message correctly. But if you want there on occasion to be a sense of belonging, you have to communicate, I want to belong. You have to take a step and say, I want to be a part of this group or this ministry team or this small group or this Sunday school group. And then in that context, the it's very natural to be in one another's business so that when you say to somebody, hey, I noticed you weren't here, nobody's taking that as you're the attendance police. It's just sort of natural. Uh, Gene and I have grown kids now, and, um, you know, they'll come to the house every once in a while, you know, for food and money. And uh, and when they come over, you know, we'll ask them, you know, how you doing, and we'll ask them about their business. And, and we're still, you know, still very connected. In fact, for Valentine's, uh, on Valentine's Day, my daughter was out with her boyfriend, my son was out with his girlfriend, and during their dates, they were texting mom. Isn't that amazing? Now, Mom, if you're watching right now, I don't know if you are or not, but when I was on dates, I never even thought about you. I'm sorry. Too late. You can't live by Nathan anymore. You're up here in Waco. Anyways, they were texting during their dates. So we're still connected. And even though they're grown, on occasion when they're spending the night, you know, either going to South Texas or schools taking a break or something, you know, we'll ask them, hey, when are you going to be in? We don't have a curfew. They're too old for that. But we're in their business. But it's not offensive. That's the way it works when there's family. You can just ask people, what's going on? What's happening? Where you been? What, what did you do tonight? And nobody takes offense. You know why? Because you're family. But when you're not family, the, the follow-up or the questions can sound like attendance police or I'm after something. And I just want to tell you, we're not after your money. We appreciate the financial support, and this has been a really weird season, and I'm very grateful for people being consistent with their giving. We appreciate that. But I'm not after your money. God's not after your money. He's after more than that. <laughs> he's he's kind of like after all of who you are, but that's another sermon altogether. But we just want a relationship with you. We don't want to turn things off. But until you take those steps to communicate, I want to be a part of community, it's not as good as it could be like the relationship that my kids have with Gina and lesser so me, but that's okay. I'm not bitter. I'm the dad. That's how it works. There's another reason that we're really, really big on community groups, and that is it's an optimal environment for spiritual growth. Uh, you know, again, no offense to me intended or Alan or Brett or anybody who ever stands up here on Sunday morning, but you're, 
until you get into a Bible study or you're intentional about kind of opening up the Scripture and intersecting with it and intersecting with it whose lives, with other people whose lives are intersecting with the Scripture, you're not going to really understand how exciting that can be. Because there's times for questions. Even after a sermon, you might say, hey, well, that was kind of convicting. And then, oh, the cowboys are playing. And then you forget. Or you don't necessarily apply. You feel, feel moved and you don't have somebody else explaining some things you might have questions to. You know, this is kind of a distance. This is a shotgun thing. I can't even actually see most of you out there. And I'm really glad because I understand that some of you still don't get dressed on Sunday mornings. But uh, around a table in a small group setting, you know, you're eye to eye. And there's the conversation going on. And there's proximity. Your impact to somebody else's life is going to be so much sharper and so much more powerful because of the proximity. You don't have to have a, a bullseye ability at a hundred meters. Every person can at least hit the target, even with a handgun, if you're just sitting six feet away from the target. Your power for impact increases as the distance between you and the other person is closed. So we need to gather together. There's this wonderful passage. It's in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24, and I'm going to read this for you real quickly. It says, let us consider one another to provoke unto love and to good works. You might be thinking, as iron sharpens iron, how is it that I'm going to sharpen this other person and you're intentional about it? Number five, community groups also provide the optimal environment for accountability. And I'm going to try to shoot through this really quickly, but just, just know this. Whenever a person needs accountability, when they need it most, they're less prone to seek it out. You don't need... You don't seek accountability when you really most need the accountability. And you're not going to receive accountability unless in advance you've already entered into a transparent, honest, vulnerable relationship. You're not going to seek it and you're not going to receive it if you don't already have some form of meaningful community in your life. Let me tell you what happens on occasion as a pastor. And I don't, I don't resent this. It's just sad a little bit because it happens on occasion. We'll get a call up to the church office and maybe nobody's in and then it'll be on the answering machine. Hey, this is Betty. And I'm just making up these names. If, if, if I'm mentioning names that are specific to you, it's not really about you. Okay. But so, hi, I'm Betty. I need, I need a pastor to call. So I get the message and I call Betty and I go, hi, hi, Betty. And I'm like, hi, who are you? Do you come to Main Street? Well, yeah, I've been there before, but we've never met. And so I don't really know this person. I don't even know if they're telling the truth. And this, this kind of thing happens. And, and I say, well, what can I do for you? And Betty says, well, my husband, Jeff, and if you're Jeff, nobody called in. The, Jeff works our sound booth, but this is not really about him. But Jeff, my husband, has been not faithful lately, and I just found out, and I need you to go correct him. Okay, I don't even know who you are, Betty. I've, no, I've never met Jeff, and you're wanting me now to get involved to bring accountability into his life. You know what I immediately think? This is a job for Brett. And, uh, and then it's a job for Mark, but if they're not available, okay, I'm going to do this. And so I, I'll follow through because who knows, God can do anything. And so it goes, you know, like knock, knock, knock. Hi, you know, who are you? My name is Ernest. And he said, yeah, my name's Jeff. Says, Jeff, it's nice to meet you. My name's Ernest. I'm your friendly local neighborhood pastor. It's so nice to meet you, Jeff. Your wife has told me so much about you. You want to go have coffee? It does. It doesn't work. I'm just telling you. If there's not a relationship that's already been established in advance, it's not going to work. 
there's not going to be help. I don't care what I intend to do or hope to do on my end. If the foundation hasn't already been established, things are not going to go well. Uh, which also kind of, when it comes to accountability, here's what will happen if you're already in a community group, for example. I've seen this happen too. Whether it's a formal community group or you're on a praise team together or you're on the deacon team together or you're in a Sunday school class, if you're connected in some respect or another, here's what happens. When somebody needs accountability, when Jeff kind of gets off sideways, I don't even have to get involved because within 30 minutes of finding out, there's four or five guys that are over at Jeff's house and they're beating some sense into him and that's okay. He can't sue them because you just don't do that in a small group. And so they're kind of beating some sense into his head and trying to confront him. And then maybe, just maybe, one of those guys comes back and talks to me and says, hey, I just talked to Jeff and here's what we talked about and here's what we did and is that okay? And I might give some affirmation, a little bit of guidance or I might not even know about it at all. That's just so much more healthy. And to me, in and of itself, that's enough reason to be a little bit more involved so that when things do start falling apart or going sideways, you've already got not just a safety net in place, but you've got some people, excuse me, you've got some people who are actually, you know, there for you in a way that they couldn't be there for you if you had just all of a sudden shown up out of the blue. I also want to say in terms of uh, this whole sense of belonging, um, look, it's not just about the accountability and the sense of belonging. it's, It's about being appropriately positioned so that when the storms come, you're not scrambling to find a foundation that hasn't already been provided. Jesus puts it like this in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, anyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like the wise man who built his house on the rock. And some of you know the story. The rain comes down, flood comes up. And the house that's on the rock, it doesn't fall apart. It, it stands and it stands firm. Most of the time we take that as a personal relationship with God through Jesus Christ. And that's great. And what he's talking about in terms of these words of mine can be the teachings. It can be the gospel, it can be Jesus Christ himself, the personal relationship with God. But as we mentioned a little bit earlier, your personal relationship with God, although it's personal, it's not private. And though you do have a relationship with the head, you have a relationship with the head also through the body. And so there are going to be times in your life where, yeah, 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 it's nice to have a personal relationship with Jesus, but you need the body of Christ for when the storms come. If you don't have that already when the storms come, it's too late for you to try to be building a foundation as you're being washed down the river. And, And this applies in so many different ways. Teenager goes off the rails. You lose your job find out you get cancer, all the rest. When the storm comes, if you haven't already built the foundation, when the weather was good and the, and the ground was dry, it is too late to be scrambling as you're being washed away. If you think, I need a sense of community, I need a sense of belonging, you're right, but you don't just need the sense of belonging. What you need is belonging. Be involved. Moving on, community groups also provide an enormous strength to those who participate. And this is kind of just a catch-all. It's not just about accountability and belonging and all the rest. There's just strength in numbers. And so when Jesus sends out the disciples, and you see this in Matthew chapter 10 and Luke chapter 10, he sends them out two by two. He sends them out in groups. And there's this wonderful passage over in the book of Ecclesiastes. There was a man all alone. He had neither son nor brother, for there was no end to his toil. Yet his eyes were not content with his wealth. For whom am I toiling, he asked. 
And why am I depriving myself of enjoyment? This too is meaningless, a miserable business. Two are better than one because they have a good return for their work. If one falls down, his friend can help him up. But pity the man who falls and has no one to help him up. Also, if two lie down together, they will keep warm. But how can one keep warm, though one may be overpowered? Two can defend themselves. A cord of three strands is not quickly broken. There's just power in numbers. There's power in terms of being on the the team. I, I came across this Wired Magazine article and it was just asking the question, why is it that Alcoholics Anonymous is so effective with regards to bringing, you know, life change to individuals? And the thing they focused on the most was just, you know, key, transparent, honest, vulnerable conversation, largely around mutual com- uh, confession. And there's texts that say confess our sins one to another. We need to be doing this. There has to be that that openness, that, that team spirit, we're in this with you. Uh, one of the studies that was pointed out as an illustration of the power of teams was this study that was done by Stanford University where in 2009 they basically discovered that people who went through group therapy, 88% of the people who were suffering from PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, 88% were completely cured through group therapy as opposed to about 30% who showed some improvement with uh, more minimal one-on-one intervention. Groups have power. Now, if you have a good, strong group, that's a lot better than being around weak people because on the flip side, you can be influenced poorly if you're in the wrong group. Uh, One of the things that was kind of interesting, and this may not be a causal, but just correlational, people who uh, are heavy drinkers, if you're around, if you have a close same-sex friend who is a heavy drinker, you're at least 50% more likely to be a heavy drinker yourself. If you want to stop drinking, find some new friends. Uh, I thought this was kind of interesting, too, that that 70% of people who have at least one close friend who's obese are more likely to become obese. And that's why I've gotten a lot closer to Alan over the last few weeks. And we're going to see how that works out. But you've got to choose your friends carefully. You, the, the thing is there's strength in small groups. There's also weakness if you're in the wrong small group. Now, a couple of other things real quickly. We're going to close on this. Community groups provide an optimal environment for sharing with, with, with others what's been passed on to you. There's this wonderful passage over in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2, where Paul is talking to Timothy, who's this person who's been discipled by the Apostle Paul. And he says, And the things you have heard me say in the presence of many witnesses entrust to reliable men who will be qualified to teach others. You pass on to others what's been passed on to you, what's been passed on to other people. And this is where investment becomes very, very key Because in life, most of the time, we wonder, am I investing appropriately? Is this going to work out? Um, I don't do a whole lot of investing, but I've got a little E-Trade account, and I follow certain things. And right now, it's kind of interesting. You know, Bitcoin. Elon Musk invested in it. Uh, The oldest bank in America. It's not even a real thing. I don't know. It puts some stuff in there. Is it going to double in a year, triple in a year? Am I going to lose everything? And then you go, well, seems like GE's done pretty well lately, or GM. And you start looking at all these things. If you do any kind of investment, even if it's not a lot of money, you go, well, is this going to go up? Is it going to go down? What's going on here? I don't know. It's a risk. Anytime you invest, it's always a risk. But it's kind of nice when the expert comes across and tells you, trust me, you do this, And it's going to pay off big time. This is how God comes to us through his word and says, here, when you invest in the lives of individuals, you're not 
taking a risk, or it's not just even risk-reward management. I'm just telling you it's 100% reward, and it's 100% reward for all eternity because when you invest the way that God wants you to invest, you're entrusting to others something that's going to be entrusted to others that can be entrusted to others, and what happens is over time the investments that you make in other people, they go parabolic, and there's this eternal payout. And all you had to do was simply get into the stream or into the flow of community where you simply gave to other people what it is that you received and it didn't really cost you anything because it was all by grace that you received in the first place and it's by grace that you pass it on to other people. It just doesn't get any better in terms of a payoff and in terms of the security of the investment. So the question that we ought to ask ourselves is, why am I not doing this? I, I, came, I came across this parable. It's kind of a dark parable, but it, it goes like this. And this is just along the lines of investing in people as individuals. And let's just go on to the next point. We'll close on this. Community groups, are they keep our focus where it needs to be on individuals. Because ultimately, that's how we need to be thinking. Not just in terms of global perspective or going big or go home. If you're going to invest well, you, you go small. We have a tendency to want to look at... Is this going to be world-changing? Is, is, you know, the, we look at the pyramids and we go, wow. We look at how many Google searches you can do in a nanosecond and we go, wow. We see these big numbers and, and the, well, the Burj Khalifa in Dubai and go, wow, tallest building in the world. And look at what we, – we have this tendency to look at big numbers and big show-ups and big attendances and all the rest. And what God wants us to do – is okay, it's nice that there's a payoff because one day up there is coming down here. The kingdom will come in all of its fullness. It's going to happen. But in the meantime, keep your eye on what's small. If you want to go big, go small. If you want to make an impact, you look at the individual. This is how it works. We miss what God would have for us because we're too anxious for some global changing moment. And God says, we'll get there. But here's how you get there. You, you go small. The good shepherd leaves the 99. Okay, it's a big number. I'm going for the one. It's a high-maintenance sheep. Everybody knows some high-maintenance sheep. I got to, as a kid, we would, my parents would do things like, here's chickens. Here's a, you know, a Jersey calf. Take care of it. And I can tell you, every animal we ever had seemed to be high-maintenance. But especially the ducks. It was crazy bad. Smelled terrible, awful, but you invest and you invest and then they grow up eventually and then they have calves and then before you know it, you've got this hole filled with, filled with cows. At least that's how it's supposed to work, although whenever I was raising calves, we'd sell them or my parents would butcher them and that's okay, I'm not bitter. But anyways, that's how you invest small. This, the parable that I came across, I thought it was kind of interesting, kind of dark. It goes like this. There was a guy who wanted to change the whole world. He saw all the suffering and all the sickness and all the illness and all the death, and he wanted to change everything. And so he was a rich man, and he gave all that he had, wrote a big check, gave it to charity. But he still couldn't sleep well at night because the world hadn't changed. So one day he decided, I'm going to donate a kidney. So he went to his doctor. I want to donate a kidney. And the doctor said, that's fine. And the surgery went well, and he gave his kidney. But he woke up the next day and the world hadn't changed. And then the next day he said, I'm going to donate my other kidney, my liver, and my cornea. And the doctor said, well, that's suicide. You can't do that. And the man said, but I want to change the world. And so he became an organ donor, took his own life, and they harvested his organs. And guess what? The world didn't change. 
Now, that's a really dark parable, but the point of it is this. You give all your money away and you give even all of your blood away. You're not going to change the world. But there was somebody who left all of his riches and he, and he spilled out every ounce of his blood. He wasn't a blood donor. He gave it all. And he's the one who changes the world. The way we change the world is just one life at a time pointing to the one who started the whole flow in the first place, and that's Jesus. You're not the Savior of the world. I'm not going to save the world. We're not going to save the world. But here's what we do. With the life that we have, we invest in one person at a time in such a way that we point to the body that was broken and the blood that was shed for us. Now, one day, your life's going to be done. One day, you're going to lose all your money. You can't take it with you. One day you're going to lose your life. You're going to go six feet under or you're going to be on an urn in somebody's house on the fireplace. But until that day comes, all you have to do is get into the flow of his grace, passing on to others what has simply been passed on to you. And what has been passed on to you is the God who gave up all of his riches and all of his body for you. It's just, it's not that complicated. And then you, for a year or two, in the small group, the flow of things, you pass to others what's been passed on to you. Then you pass it on to somebody else, and they pass what's been passed on to you. And you entrust to others who entrust to others who entrust to others until one day up there comes down here. And the whole world has been made right. And you got to be a part of that investment with capital that was given to you that you didn't even earn. What a privilege, really, to invest in one person or two or three people at a time and then entrust all the rest to God, the God who entrusted all that he had to you in the first place. What a beautiful thing, I think, to be a part of the body of Christ in that way. Now, small groups in people's homes, not the only way to do it. We have Sunday school classes that in many respects operate in these ways. We have stuff that goes on on Tuesday nights that operates along those lines. We have ministry teams that operate as their own families. But if you're not involved in something outside of just large group occasional settings, I'm just telling you, you're, you're going you're gonna to be missing it. Because when the church grew originally, there, were, there wasn't staging, there weren't lights, there weren't praise teams. We didn't even have buildings. And somehow the gospel and the kingdom of God advanced because it was just one life on another life on another life. And now here we are. And at this point, I really don't want to blow it by going backwards and veering from the original plan, which was just community. People's lives invested in other people's lives. Now, if you're kind of curious, what does a community group look like on Wednesday night? At 6.15, you know, Lord willing, if we can get up the steps and get to the church, there's going to be a, a small group meeting on, on camera. Brett's going to be leading it. I'll be in the small group, and I don't know who else is going to be in there. But you can just have a look, and this is what a small group would look like, and this is what they would do. So I hope that you'll come back Wednesday and, and see that. Check that out. But in the meantime, what I really want you to do also is to simply pray, God, what is it that I could do? in terms of hosting or teaching or participating, whether it be in the home group ministry or just getting more involved or involved in the first place with regards to a Sunday school or a ministry team. 
if you're interested in being more involved and actually experiencing in your life what it means to be in community, please reach out to us. In particular, reach out to Brett, B-R-E-T, that's one T, Brett at msbchurch.com. Let him know of your interest in plugging in and supporting these community groups. I know this has been a little bit different of a message uh, today, but hopefully this is really practical because we're hoping that soon we'll be getting back to getting back to normal. But when we get back to normal, we want it to be a new normal and a better normal and, and back to kind of how the church was originally in the very beginning. Just house to house, group to group. It's not that complicated. And uh, I want you to know the joy of what it's like to participate in life together as the body of Christ so that that human-shaped hole in your soul will be filled. And when it's filled in the right way, you'll experience a fullness that you didn't even know that you were missing. For now, let's go ahead and bow for a word of prayer and then we'll be dismissed. You guys drive carefully. We're not coming back this evening. It's Valentine's, and we're not risking coming back up here. I would do it for myself, but we've got other people that have to be in support, and I'm not making John Verbanek drive one more time through all that ice and snow. Although it's a risk I'm willing to take, uh, we're not going to take it. Uh, but anyways, see you next Sunday, if not sooner, and Wednesday night. For now, let's go ahead and bow for a word of prayer. Uh, God, we love you so much. We just say thank you for giving us the opportunity to be in the flow of your love, your grace. It, it's the Alpha and the Omega. We, what we have, we receive from you. What we entrust to others is just you flowing through us. And when we're gone, it's still going to be you. But we got to be a part of the investment chain. And, and in some respect, there's, there's rewards for us simply by doing what it is that you would have us to do in the way that you would have us to do it in community with others, opening up our lives, opening up your word, and and just trying to see how we could sharpen other people as iron sharpens iron. Thank you for the church. May we not miss the most important aspect of it. May we be involved in the best of ways so at the end of our days we will know that we've invested our time, our resources, our money well. Be with us now as we go from this place. Protect us, and we pray that in Christ's holy name. Amen.